face, it doesn't look like it. There's some of you that walked in here this morning and you're married and by all appearances you are happily married. The truth of the matter is you are completely miserable. You walked in here today and everybody thinks that your marriage is held together by steel cords when in reality it's really held together by a single thread. And when you test the soil or look closely enough, you see it, but you kind of tend to push it out of your mind and you don't really think a lot about it. And then one day something triggers that fault. And the rocks in your relationship shift. And then when you do, the foundations begin to shake. And the doors begin to rattle. And the china begins to fall off the shelf. And everybody begins to run to, the, and to hide in the bathtub and, or in the bathroom in the safest place you can find. And I live it every day of my life as a pastor. I watch every day as relational faults rupture families and they rupture marriages and they rupture friendships, and they rupture churches. And they send shockwaves of heartache and misery and suffering that last for generations. So today we're going to begin a very, very important series that I want to encourage you not to miss. We're going to be in this series for six weeks. We're calling it Faults. Because I can tell you firsthand, in every role I play, a pastor, a husband, a father, and a friend, I can tell you now, this series is desperately needed. Because we're going to cover some fractures that, just to be very honest with you, I've experienced in my very own life. Many of you will not be strangers to them either. Whether you're sitting in this room, or you're watching by television, or you're listening through a live stream, or you're watching on a webcast, there are hidden faults in your life, and hidden faults in the lives of the people that you live with, and you work with, and that you know. And, and, and they're causing ruptures that are leading to earthquakes that are destroying relationships. Some have already rattled the surface of your life, and everybody can see them, but many are tucked just below the surface, but they're there just the same. Now, the first thing I want you to remember is this. When you notice a fault, someone is always at fault. When you notice a fault, someone is always at fault. If there is a fracture in a friendship or a rupture in a relationship, rest assured, a fault is lurking somewhere. And I've never seen a relationship come apart that somebody wasn't at fault. You know, we, we live in a society today where we have this phenomenon called no-fault divorce. Think about how ridiculous that is. Trust me on this. In every divorce, somebody has to be at fault. Because if there were no faults in the relationship, the marriage would have lasted and divorce would never have occurred. So whenever you notice a fault, someone is always at fault. Now, as I've experienced, this bre experienced breaches in relationships, and I have, I've come to discover that one of two things is true. Whenever there's a break in a relationship, whenever two people have this rupture, and all of a sudden where they used to be like this, they're now separated, an earthquake is coming to that relationship and destroyed that relationship, one of two things is always true. In some cases, it's not your fault, it's mine. I'm the one that caused the rupture. I'm the one that caused the crack. Now, in other cases, it's not my fault, it's yours. In a marriage, for example, I have found both of these things to be true. Sometimes the husband has to say, you know what? It's not my fault. It's hers. At other times, the wife has to say, you know, it's not my fault. 
It's his. But then most of the time, couples have to say, it's our fault. Part of the fault is yours. Part of the fault is mine. And it doesn't really matter because most of the time, both people have contributed to the fracture. So what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks is simply this. I want to tell you how to repair a broken relationship. I want to tell you how to restore a fractured friendship. I want to tell you the steps you need to take maybe to be, mend a, a broken marriage. How to fix those fractures. How to reconnect what we disconnect. So what we're going to do over the next several weeks is, is we're going to deal with, the first, with both scenarios. Now, for the first three weeks, here's what we're going to do. I want to deal with a scenario where it's not their fault, it's your fault. Or in my case, it's not your fault, it's my fault. How do we deal with a situation when we're the guilty party? We're the ones that have done wrong. We know we're the ones that fouled up. We're the ones who have committed the problem. We're the one that's broken the relationship. We're going to spend the first three weeks dealing with that situation. Then we're going to flip it. In the next three weeks, we're going to be dealing with the other scenario when it's not my fault, it's your fault. How do we fix a relationship when we're not the person that broke it? How do, how do, how do we put the fault back together when we're not the one that caused it? How, how do we do that? How, how do we put those relationships back together? Now, let me just say this before I get into this message. What I don't need you to be doing in the next three weeks is pointing fingers. Because part of the problem is this. One of the major reasons why relationships never get fixed and marriages never get mended and relationships never get repaired is because instead of trying to, trying to fix the problem, we try to fix the blame. We've got to get beyond that. We've got to decide we're going to fix the problem. Because the problem is whenever we have a relationship breakdown, we cannot focus on fixing the blame. We've got to focus on fixing the problem. Now, here's the good news. God knew that relationships are messy. God knew that friendships can be fragile. God knew that uh, marriages can sometimes be very, very, very hard to maintain. So God has given us in his word principles that will help us to fix any relationship. He's given us rules that will help us to break down the problem not, find the, not, not fix the blame, but to fix the problem. And he can tell us what we need to do when either we've hurt someone or someone has hurt us. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to begin at the very place where every relationship must begin if it's going to be fixed and fixed right, and that is our relationship with God. And let me tell you why, and it goes all the way back to earthquakes. When I went back and did my, my homework and I did my study on earthquakes, I found out about what's known as the epicenter. I didn't know what an epicenter was, but you'll find this kind of interesting. The epicenter is the location directly above the surface of the earth where an earthquake begins. Let me give you an example. If some of you will remember that, that day in February uh, this year when the earthquake hit Atlanta. And if you remember that, what you may not have realized is that that earthquake did not begin in Atlanta. It actually began in Fairfield, South Carolina, which is a city about 25 miles northeast of Augusta, Georgia. That is where the epicenter took place. That is where the, the earthquake began. So when an earthquake occurs in our physical lives, it's due to geolo geological cracks that take place at the epicenter. 
When an earthquake occurs in our relational lives, it's due to spiritual cracks that take place, and they also take place at the epicenter. Here's what I want you to understand. The epicenter of a relational fracture or breakdown is a spiritual crack. It's not an emotional crack. It's not just a mental crack. It is a spiritual crack. Now, there's a biblical term for what we call these spiritual cracks. They're called sin. In other words, ultimately, every relationship that's ruptured is caused by sin. Every marriage that doesn't make it is caused by sin. Every friendship that gets fractured is caused by sin. That is the epicenter of every fault that causes every earthquake that takes place in our relationship. So that leads to this principle. Sin is always against God first. Doesn't matter who you hurt. Doesn't matter how you hurt them. Doesn't matter what you do. Sin is always against God's God first. Let me put it to you this way. You can sin against God, but not sin against someone else. But you cannot sin against someone else without sinning against God. So if, you've, you, if you have done something to offend someone, you've done something to hurt someone, you have mistreated someone, the primary offense is not against them. That's secondary. The primary offense is always against God. You always sin against God first. So once we realize these spiritual cracks are present, once we realize that they're, 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 they're called sin, once we realize that a spiritual problem deserves a spiritual solution, that raises a question. How do we address them? I mean, I mean, you know, the answer is basically the same way we address a physical crack. The first thing you've got to do to, to, to fix a crack is you've got to acknowledge the crack is there. If, if, like in my house, for example, we, we built our house several years ago. And you'll notice that when you build a house, after the foundation begins to settle, this happens to every new home. After, after a house is built and the foundation is, you know, you kind of settle the thing out, you'll develop little tiny cracks in your walls, in your ceiling. It doesn't mean the house is falling apart. It just means things have settled down and you've got these tiny little faults. So what you do is you caulk them and you fix them. You, but before you do that, you've got to acknowledge the crack is there. You've got to acknowledge the fault is there. What you do for a physical fault, you do for a spiritual fault. Because until you acknowledge that the fault exists, you'll never, ever get rid of it. You'll never fix it. You'll never be protected against it. You can't even begin mending it. Now, in spiritual language, in biblical language, what we call fixing a fault is the word confession. Confession is the first step you have to take in mending a relationship. It's the first step you've got to take to fix a friendship, restore a relationship, mend a marriage. You not only have to acknowledge, okay, I've got a fault. It's not your fault. It's mine. You've got to confess that fault. Now, before I get into the meat of the message, let me just say this. In almost every case, confession always has two dimensions. Most of the time, we only do one, and that's why we never really fix the problem. Confession always has two dimensions. There's this vertical dimension we're going to talk about in just a moment, but then there's this horizontal dimension. Because when our sin or our thought has hurt someone else, the first thing we've got to do is confess to God. Why? Because the, we always sin first against God. But this is where a lot of us totally miss the boat. If you've hurt someone, and you know you've hurt someone, you don't get off just by going to God and saying, well, God, I, I'm so sorry that I hurt that person. Would you please forgive me? 
God will forgive you, but a part of that forgiveness process is then you must go and confess that to the person that you've hurt. So what I want to do today is this. I'm going to show you in one verse of Scripture the most important step anybody can ever take to solve the problem that's caused by our fault. Now, before I get into this, let me tell you one other thing I found that really kind of surprised me. You would think that when you read the New Testament, that you would, you would think that the confession of sin would be something the Bible would talk about, I mean, almost constantly. You know what I found? When you study the confession of sin in the New Testament, it's found very, very seldom in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, in fact, beside the verse that we're going to see today, confession of sin is only found four other times in all of the New Testament. I thought about that, and I thought, confession's a big deal. You can't fix a friendship. You can't restore a relationship. You can't mend a marriage unless you're willing to confess up to whatever it is you've done to hurt that relationship. So why isn't there more emphasis on confession of sin in the New Testament? And this is what I believe is true. I believe that God said really all he needed to say about confession in basically one verse of Scripture. He tells us all that we need to know about how to start taking that very first step to fixing those relationships that's caused by our faults. So if you brought a copy of God's Word, an iPad, an iPhone, a smart tablet, whatever it might be, I want you to turn to a little book in the New Testament. It's called 1 John, not the Gospel of John, but 1 John. If you go to the book of the Revelation, which is the last book in the Bible, it's about five books back from the book of Revelation. I want you to turn to 1 John. And this is what we're going to learn today. This is what I want you to take out the door. When I confess, God takes care of my mess. When I confess, God takes care of my best. Now, I want you to listen to this verse of Scripture. Oh, by the way, this would be a great verse of Scripture that you ought to learn. One of the very first verses I learned when I became a new Christian as a little boy, nine-year-old boy, was this verse of Scripture. And am I glad I did because it really comes in handy. Here's the verse. If we confess our sins, he, that is God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, believe it or not, tucked away in those few brief words in that little short verse are, is a three-step process that I absolutely will guarantee you to take care of you whenever it's your fault. So remember now, we're dealing with a situation where there's sin in your life. It's not your mother that sinned. It's not your brother that sinned. It's you that sinned. You're the one that messed up. You're the one that fouled up. You're the one that needs to get forgiveness. You're the one that, that caused the problem. How do you deal with it? There's a three-step process. Here we go. Number one, we confess our sin. First thing you do, we confess our sin. Now listen to the first few words of that verse we just read. If we confess our sins, he, I've already told you, that he that John is referring to is obviously God. Now, here's the important point. Confession does not always end with God, but it must always begin with God. I'm going to say that again. Confession does not always end with God, but it always begins with God. And I told you why earlier. Because every sin, first and foremost, is always against God. I want you to remember this principle. Whenever you sin against anyone, forgiveness only comes through confessing to them. 
Whenever you sin against anyone, forgiveness only comes through confessing to them, all right? Well, since we've already established that all sin is always ultimately first against God, the first one we need to go to when we fouled up is to God. So when you're in the wrong or you've done someone wrong, the first, though not necessarily the last person you talk to, is to be to God. That talk is to be the point where you give confession. Now, as painful as it may be, you've got to fess up to your mess up. See, you don't have the right to remain silent before God. You can't take the Fifth Amendment before God. So let me put it this way. If you want to come clean, you must confess completely. This is one of the things I find with people who, who, who are on guilt trips and people who are haunted by guilt. They, they, they think they've confessed, but they really haven't confessed. You can't confess partly to God. You, 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 can't, you can't confess with an excuse. Well, God, I did this, but he calls me, or she said this, or she, she made me angry. You know, if you're going to confess to God, if you want to come clean, you must confess completely. Let me tell you what that means. Because we lost the art of confession in, in our society today. When you confess, you start calling sin what it is. And God calls it sin. Because one of the problems we've got in today's society is we don't even know how to call sin, sin anymore. You, you don't even, hardly even heard that word used anymore. As a matter of fact, let me, you, you know what the favorite term that we have in our culture for sin? You know what it is? If, I'll tell you what it is. You fill in the blank. I made a what? Mistake. People, when they do wrong, I made a mistake. All right, listen, if you don't hear anything else I say, get this down. Sin is not a mistake. If you go the wrong way on a one-way street by accident, that's a mistake. If you turn the wrong way on a one-way street because you're intoxicated, that is a sin. If you put salt in your coffee instead of sugar, that is a mistake. If you throw hot coffee on an obnoxious Florida fan, that is a sin. Not a big sin, but it's a sin, okay? Now, if you accidentally add up a, uh, add up a row of numbers wrong, that's a mistake. But if you purposely cheat on your income taxes, that is a sin. Sin is not a mistake. So I want you to understand clearly and carefully what confession means. The word confess actually comes from a compound Greek word it, it, with a prefix meaning the same. The suffix means to say. So the word confess literally means in the English language to say the same thing. So when you confess sin, here's what you're doing. You're saying, God, I'm going to call whatever I did what you call whatever I did. So for an example... When you confess sin and you agree with God, with whatever God says, you say, okay, it wasn't a fling, it was adultery. If God calls it stealing, you don't call it borrowing. Whatever you do, you don't call it a mistake. If it was lying, you don't call it exaggeration. As a matter of fact, listen to this. Ecclesiastes, I've never seen this before in the Bible, believe it or not. Ecclesiastes 5, 6 says this. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. 
Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Listen to what's, what the author of Ecclesiastes said. He said, you know what just really makes God angry? Is when you sin and you call it a mistake. You call it an error. You call it a misjudgment. God says, no, it's not a mistake. It's not an error. It's not a misjudgment. It is sin. And the worst thing you can do is to cover it up. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever wondered why we're all born with this tendency? We are. Have you ever wondered why we're all born with this tendency that when we sin and we do something wrong, that we try to cover them up? We try to cover it up. We try to hide it. We try to pretend that we didn't do it. I've, I've, I've thought a lot about that. Why do we do that? Why don't we, when we just do wrong, why don't we just immediately confess to it? Why don't we just immediately say, yep, I did it. I, you know, Mama, I, I was stealing the cookies out of the cookie jar. Why don't we just go ahead and fess up to our mess up? And I thought a lot about it. And I'm going to tell you why I believe we don't. It's because we fear the consequences of confession more than we fear the consequences of concealment. We fear the consequences of confession more than we fear the consequences of concealment. And see, the problem with trying to cover it up is this. Sin will eventually catch up with you. It really will. The Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. Sin will eventually catch up with you. And here's the bigger problem. You, you, you go back and you, you'll see this in your own life. When you try to cover something up, by the time it eventually catches up with you, the penalty that you have to suffer then actually turns out to be greater than it would have been if you just confessed it to begin with. I was reading the other day about a young man. His name is Nicholas Leeson. You probably never heard of him. Nicholas Leeson was a 28-year-old man. He worked for a British bank called Barings. At one time, Barings was one of the largest banks in the world. In 1995, he was given a job that put him in control of large amounts of money for this bank. Well, his heart was right, his motive was right, but he came up with this idea that he could increase their holdings through what's been called casino-style investing. Well, the problem was when his dealings resulted in huge losses, instead of immediately going to his supervisor and saying, hey, I messed up, I've lost this money, I'll try to pay it back, give me time, I'll, I'll, I'll try to refurbish the account, you know what he did? He covered it up. And he began to make even riskier deals, hoping to recoup his losses. In essence, what he started doing, he started going double or nothing. He started doubling down on his losses. You know what happened? When he got caught, he had cost that bank $1 billion, and the bank went bankrupt. When they went back and looked at his initial losses, he could have easily, in time, paid back those losses. But instead, because he feared the consequences of confession, more than he feared the consequences of concealment, he covered it up. And I, I often ask myself, and I'm just being honest, why is it so hard for us to tell the truth? Why is it so hard for us that when we mess up, just to fess up? Why is it you have to pull it out of people sometimes? Kent Crockett's an author I like to read about. Kent Crockett tells this classic story in his early years of parenting. He had two kids. His two-year-old son was Scott. And, and, and he had a little four-year-old daughter. His, her name was Hannah. He said, one day, he heard, heard, heard his little boy crying. He was upstairs in the bedroom. And he goes running up to, up, up to the bedroom, and, and there's a little boy, Scott. He's just bawling his eyes, that little two-year-old boy. And, and he noticed there was this plastic baseball bat on the floor. So he looked at his little four-year-old daughter, Hannah, and he said, uh, Hannah, what, what happened to Scott? And she said, well, um, he hit his head. He said, well, what did he hit his head on? 
And she pointed to the bat on the floor and she said, the bat. He said, well, where was the bat? She said, in my hands. Now, when the fault is yours, when you've committed the sin, the first thing you ought to do, I mean, step one, you immediately go to God and, and you say, God, I have, and you call it what it is, I've lied, I've cheated, I've stolen, I've embezzled, whatever it is. You go to God and you say, God, I have, I've gotten drunk, I've gotten inebriated, I don't care what it is. God, I have sinned because here's what happens. When you go to God and you confess that sin, what you're going to find out now in this verse is you just set off this chain reaction, this positive chain reaction that leads to reconciliation and redemption and restoration. Because I want you to notice now what happens. When I confess the sin, God cancels the debt. When I confess the sin, God cancels the debt. Now, the first half of the verse that we just, that we just read deals with our part in repairing the fault. But then the second half deals with God's part. Because here's what God says. God says, okay, you messed up. Yes, Lord, I messed up. It's your fault. Yes, Lord, it's my fault. You did it. Yes, Lord, I did it. God says, okay, you messed up. Now you fess up. Okay, God, I'm coming to you. I'm not trying to hide anything. No Watergate cover up for me. I have sinned. This is exactly what I did, and I'm calling it exactly what you call it. God says, wonderful. Now that you've done your part, now I'm going to do my part. If we confess our sins, here's the second stage of this chain reaction. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Now, in order to understand just what a great mind-boggling statement that is, you've got to understand two things. You've got to understand what sin is, and you've got to understand what forgiveness is. See, when Jesus, remember when Jesus was teaching the disciples how to pray? If you go over to Matthew, this is the way Matthew records the Lord's Prayer. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That's kind of interesting. If you go to the Gospel of Luke, Luke uses the word sins. As we forgive our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Matthew uses a totally different word. He talks about the word debt and debtor. Now, why did Matthew use that specific word? Well, here's what you may not know. Even though the New Testament was written in Greek, Jesus didn't speak Greek. Jesus spoke Aramaic, and the Aramaic word for sin literally means a debt that is owed. The Aramaic word for forgive literally means to cancel or forget or wipe out a debt. Now, here's the way it works. When you and I were born from the time we came out of our mother's womb, we owed God one thing, absolute, complete, total, perfect obedience. Guess what? Every time we disobey God, we go into a sin debt. We owe God a debt. Because remember, the one thing that we owe God is obedience. And every time we disobey, we ring up this debt called sin. Now, here's the amazing thing. This is what John tells us. He said, every time you go to God, every time, and you say, God, I, I rung up another sin debt here. Would you wipe that debt out? Would you cancel that debt? God gladly 
does it. Now think about that. Every time you go into debt with God, into a sin debt with God, every time you go to God and you say, God, would you just forgive the debt? Would you just wipe that debt off the books? God gladly does it. Now, I know what a lot of you are thinking right now. I, I promise you, I got, you got it all figured out. You're sitting there, you're going, I sure wish I had a credit card with God. I, I, I sure wish my mortgage was with God. Because, I mean, after all, wouldn't it be the coolest thing to go out to, today, go out to the mall with, with a, you know, with American Express or a Visa or a MasterCard? Wouldn't it be great to go out and just buy everything and anything you wanted at the mall and then come home and just call up America, uh, American Express or Visa or MasterCard? Just call them up and say, hey, I just ran up a $30,000 bill on this card. And I'm going to be real honest with you. I can't pay it. Would you just mind forgetting and forgiving this debt? Wouldn't it be great just to hear them say, sure, no problem. Or wouldn't it be great to go to your, your, go to your banker? You say, look, I, I, you know, I, I built a $500,000 house. I only make $50,000 a year. I cannot pay the mortgage. Would you mind just you know, kind of wiping this off the books? And the banker says, have a nice day. No problem. See you later. Absolutely. Enjoy the house. You say, well, unrealistic. Yes, in the physical world, unrealistic. But in the spiritual world, that's exactly what happens every single day, billions of times around the world. We come to God, hat in our hand, God, I've, I've sinned. I did it again. I've disobeyed you. It's my fault. I'm the one that messed up. I'm asking you, would you please forgive this sin debt? And God says, absolutely, more than happy to do it. Now, that raises a big question. Why is God willing to do that? And why is he willing to do it every single time? And oh, by the way, how do we know that he will always do it every time we ask him? How do we know we don't ever have to worry about ever going to God and God finally says, you know what, I've had enough. I've wiped off debt after debt after debt after debt for you and it's just really time that you paid this debt on your own. How do we know that God will forgive us every single time? Here's the answer. First of all, God is faithful. He's faithful to his promise. Isaiah 55, 7 says this. Let the sinful turn from his way, and the one who does not know God turn from his faults. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have loving pity on him. Let him turn to our God, for he will, I love these two words, he will for sure forgive all his sins. See, God made a promise. He said, every time you come to me, every single time, one of my children crawl into my lap and say, Lord, I'm here again. I want to confess my sin. I'm admitting my debt. He said he will forgive it and he will cancel it. So remember this, true confession always brings total forgiveness. I'm going to say that again. True confession always brings total forgiveness. By the way, the word faithful means every time. Here's an illustration. If a husband is faithful to his wife 364 days a year, he's not faithful. You got it? If a husband's faithful to his wife 364 days a year, he's not 
faithful. I think I've told you before that one of the things I tell Teresa every night, usually before we go to bed, is I'll say, I've always been faithful to you. Tell her that every night. I've always been faithful to you. In fact, one time I told her, I said, I'd rather die than be unfaithful to you. And she said, don't worry. If you are, you will. So I, I want to be faithful to my wife. I want to I literally die being faithful to her. Well, that raises another question. But how do we know that God will be faithful to do what he said he would do? Because, John said, he is also just. He's not just faithful to do it. He's just to do it. Let me tell you what that means. If someone truly forgives a debt that you don't owe, if someone truly forgives the debt, if you go to someone and say, look, I owe this money, can't pay it back, they say, no problem, and they wipe that debt off the books. They totally wipe the slate clean because, you know, they, they, they really do it. Here's what you have to remember. Maybe they wipe that debt off for you, but somebody had to pay that debt. You remember this. Whenever anybody wipes off a debt or writes off a debt, it doesn't mean that nobody paid the debt. It just means you didn't pay the debt. Somebody's got to pay the debt. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he paid for our sin debt. As a matter of fact, back in verse 7, John said this. If we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Here's a, let me give you an illustration. The other night, Several weeks ago, Teresa and I went out to a restaurant, in fact, not far from our church, and we took a couple of our church members to dinner. And so we were sitting there, and we were having dinner, and uh, I kept waiting on the bill. I kept waiting on the check, and, and, and I told her, you know, we were buying dinner, and so I told the waitress to bring us the bill, and she never did. And so finally, she walked by, and I stopped, and I said, you know, listen, we really need to get on the road. We, 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 we need to, you know, to, to, I need to get the check. And she kind of smiled, and she said, uh, somebody's already picked up your bill. I said, what? She said, yep, somebody's already picked up your bill. Well, when I walked in that night, I had seen some dear friends of ours sitting at a table. So I put two and two together, and I knew immediately who it was. So I went over there, and I hugged their necks, and I said, you're so kind. You know, I said, you need to pick it. Oh, no, Pastor, we love you. We love the church. We, it's something we wanted to do for you. And they didn't even know who I was with. They didn't even know the church members that I was with. And they said, something we just want to do for you, and we're just so happy to do it. Now, I want you to imagine then when I asked that waiter for the check, he brought me another check. And I want you to imagine that he paid, made me pay that check all over again. You say, well, pastor, then that waiter would have been unjust. That's right. That, that waiter would have been dishonest. That's exactly right. Because if that waiter had made me pay what had already been paid for, it would have been wrong. He would have been guilty of a crime. He would have been unjust. And here's what I want you to understand. Every sin we've ever committed or ever will commit has already been paid in full in advance by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has already picked up the tab for your sin. Jesus Christ has already paid for your sin. Therefore, it would be unjust and dishonest even for God in heaven to make us pay for sins that Jesus has already paid for. So, in fact, this may help you out. Have you ever confessed sins to God? I want you to think about this. Have you ever confessed sins to God that you've committed, you did wrong, and you go to God and you confess that sin? Has this ever happened to you? Even though you go to God and you confess that sin, you still don't feel forgiven. 
I mean, I'd ask you right now, how many of you, how many of you would hold up here and say, yeah, I've had that experience. I, I've gone to God, and I've asked God to forgive me, and I really was sincere, but after I got through asking God to forgive me, I still didn't feel forgiven. I mean, yeah, a lot of you in this room, you say, yeah, that, that, that's me. All right, remember this. Your forgiveness depends on God's faithfulness, not your feelings. Your forgiveness depends on God's faithfulness, not your feelings. If you go to God and you truly confess your God, uh, to your sins, God truly cleanses your sin, and it doesn't matter how you feel. The fact is you have been forgiven. Every time you confess, you'll be forgiven. Why? Because God is faithful and God is just. But listen, the news gets even better. Watch this. When I confess the sin, not only does God cancel the debt, but God cleanses us completely. Now watch this. This is so good. Here's the last part of this verse. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let me tell you what that means. God doesn't just take the debt off the book, but puts a carbon copy in his desk. God wipes the record clean. In other words, let me put it to you this way. God doesn't just forgive our debt. He forgets our debt. As a matter of fact, God says this in Isaiah 43, 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Now, let's be honest. I, I don't want you to misunderstand this. Does that literally mean that God literally forgets my sin? No. God can't forget anything. I mean, God's omniscient. God knows everything. If you know everything, you can't forget anything. That would be impossible. God knows everything because God has a perfect memory. What God means when he says, I will forget your sins, what he means is, I am never going to hold that sin against you again. I'm not going to hold a grudge. And the only way I will remember your sin is as forgiven sin. So in effect, what God does is, he takes the sin that we bring to him, he buries it in the grave of his grace, and we never need to dig up what God has buried. I read a story the other day, it's, it's just so blessed me, and I think it'll be an encouragement to you. Cardinal Jaime Sin, that is his last name, believe it or not, Sin. Cardinal Jaime Sin was the Catholic Archbishop of Manila in the Philippines. As a matter of fact, he was the leader, in, one of the leaders in the revolution that gave the Philippines a democracy. And Cardinal Sin loved to tell the story of a woman who would, was coming to his church. And after every service, she'd go up to him and she would tell him, I've got a message from God directly for you that I need to tell you. She'd tell him that every single Sunday. Well, he thought she was nuts, thought she was crazy. He had brushed her off. But every Sunday, she'd come back, and when she'd go to shake his hand, she would look at him, she'd say, I'm telling you, I've got a message for God directly from you that God has told me that I'm to tell you. Well, finally, he said, you know, Catholics have strict rules governing visions and messages from God, and so I thought I would test, you know, test this woman's authenticity. So the next Sunday, the woman came and she said, I've got a message for you directly from God, and I need to give you that message. And here's what he said to her. He said, he said here's what I want you to do. He said, I want you to go, and I want you to ask God about a particular sin that I just confessed yesterday in private. Nobody knows it but me and God. I want you to go to God about this sin that I confessed in private yesterday. And I want you to ask God what that sin was. 
And if God tells you what that sin was, I will know that your vision is genuine and I'll listen to what you've got to say. She said, okay. So the next week she came back. He was kind of nervous and I started thinking about it. And he said, man, what, is, what if God tells her, you know? So he, he, uh, she, she came and she said, okay, I'm, I'm ready to talk. And so they sat down and he said, well, did you ask God about my sin? And she said, I did. He said, and did God give you the answer? And she said, he did. He said, so what did God say about that sin that I confessed? She said, God said he couldn't remember it. Now, that's what happens when you go to God and you take your sin to God. He distinctly makes up his mind he is not going to remember it. Now, let me stop here. You're sitting there and you're saying, oh, man, you've really helped me, Pastor, because I know what I need to do. I've really hurt my brother or hurt my sister. I've hurt my spouse. I've hurt my friend or I've offended my neighbor. And you know what I'm going to do right now? I, even while I'm sitting in my chair, I'm going to tell God, oh, God, I really did that, and I'm sorry. Would you please forgive me? Not enough. Because even when we when we have sinned against others, remember, confession begins with God, but it must end with the person that we've forgiven, that we've offended. As a matter of fact, let me tell you this. Do you know how you'll really know when, you've, when God's really forgiven you? If you've really hurt somebody else, do you know how you will really know that God has forgiven you? It's when your forgiveness from God motivates you to go confess that sin to the person you've hurt and get forgiveness from them. You really haven't experienced the real forgiveness of God until that forgiveness motivates you to go to the person you've offended and get forgiveness for them. So here's your assignment as we wrap all this up. Here's your homework. Your homework is, if there's someone that you know that you've hurt, if there's someone you know that's bitter against you, there's someone you know that's holding a grudge against you, and you know it's, they're doing it because it was not their fault, it was your fault. They didn't do anything to you, you did what you did to them. Here's what I want you to do. Number one, you confess it to God, because before you hurt them, you hurt him. Before you sinned against them, you sinned against him. So the first thing I want you to do, you can do it right now, you can even say to God, God, I want you to forgive me, and then you get specific. What did you do? Forgive me for lying. Forgive me for stealing. For, forgive me for, for cursing. Forgive me for whatever it was. Lord, forgive me for what I did. And then you make it a point, if at all possible, face-to-face, -face, that you go to the one that you've hurt and you've offended. Now, that raises one other question. We've been dealing with believers in this message. This verse was written to believers. It wasn't written to unbelievers. It was written to believers. We're into Christians. Well, that raises a question. So what is the difference between Christians who sin and non-Christians who sin? Because obviously, it's not that non-Christians sin where Christians don't. And by the way, if you're not a believer this morning, let me make it plain. Believers are not perfect. They're just forgiven. We, we deal with the same issues you deal with. We fight the same battles that you fight. We struggle with the same temptations you struggle with. We're In that respect, we are no different than you are. So if you're sitting there and you're not a believer and you're saying, okay, let me get this straight. So you're just like me in a lot of respects, right? That's right. So you get tempted? Yep. Do you sometimes lose it? Yep. Do you sometimes mess up? Yep. Do you sometimes hurt other people? Yep. Is it sometimes your fault? Absolutely. Okay, then I don't understand. 
What's the difference between a believer and a non-believer? What's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? Here's the difference. The difference is which side you take in the battle. Because a believer will sin. And here's what the believer says. It was a mistake. It was a misjudgment. I just was having a bad day. Or you might even deny that you really did anything that wrong to begin with. Here's a good one. Well, it didn't really hurt anyone else. How can I say it was wrong? But if you're a believer, here's what you'll say. Lord, whatever you said about what I just did, that's what I say. However you feel about what I just did, that's how I feel. If God calls it sin, I call it sin. The world may call it a choice, I call it sin. The world may say it's none of your business. If you're a believer, you will say it is God's business. And here's the larger point, then we're done. Everyone on planet Earth is going to die in one of two ways. So just get this down. I don't know how you're going to die. What I mean by that is I don't know whether you're going to die by a heart attack, drive-by shooting, stroke, brain aneurysm, cancer. I don't know how you're going to die physically. I do know how you're going to die spiritually because there's only one of two ways you can die. You can die with all of your sins forgiven or you're going to die with none of your sins forgiven. And the wonderful news is this. Whether you are a believer in Jesus or you're not, Here's the good news. If you will confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of all of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Let's pray together. Lord, I can only stand up here today as a forgiven man who's a sinner preaching to other sinful people who either have been or have not been forgiven. And this is my prayer for you today. If you walked into this building and you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you walked in here today and you've lived most of your life on one big guilt trip. You walked in here today and you wake up every morning feeling dirty and going to bed dirty because you know there's something wrong with you and that something wrong is called sin. You walked in here today and you don't speak to your mom or your dad. You don't speak to a son or a daughter or a brother or sister. And the reason is because it's your fault. And you've been too proud and too egotistical to do anything about it. Here's what I'm sharing with you today. If you will come to God right now first, confess what you've done, confess what you are to God first, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive you first of all for what you've done to him, and then you'll be equipped to get forgiveness for what you've done to others. So if you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, just pray this prayer right now. Just say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I admit it. I'm calling me what you call me, a sinner. I'm lost and I'm in need of a Savior. 
I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe God raised you from the dead. I believe that you're alive right now. And I ask you to come into my heart and I ask you to save me. I repent and turn away from my sin and trust you as my Lord. If you prayed that prayer and you meant it, I want you to take that registration card that was attached to your worship guide right now. Do it while, you're, while I'm talking right now. Take that registration card, fill it out, sign your name to it, give us some contact information. There's a little box there that says, Today I pray to receive Christ as my Lord and Savior. I want you to check that box off. You may be here today and you may say, I, I've already prayed to receive Christ, Pastor, I have. Well, have you been biblically baptized after you made that decision? Well, no, I haven't done that. You know, that's the first thing God wants you to do. And do you know why? Do you know what people say when they get baptized? you know what they're really saying? What they're saying is, I am a confessed, cleansed sinner. I have gone to this faithful and just God and confessed all of my sins, and this God has forgiven me. And that's the way you publicly testify to that. I'm going to encourage you today, if you've never been biblically baptized, to take that card and check off that box that says, Today, I made a decision to be biblically baptized. Or maybe you'd like to become a part of what we're doing, either at the Mill Creek campus or here at the Sugarloaf campus. You'd like to be a partner with us. You'd like to get into what God is doing here. There's a box there that says, I'd like to begin the, member, the partnership process at Crosspoint. And just check off that box. Now, what do you do with that? Well, when you go to leave... Our campus is today. You can either drop your card in a box. They're called giving centers. They got slots in them. You can see them. Or if you're here, you can come see me. If you're at Sugar Lo at, at uh, Mill Creek, you can go see Chad Logan, our campus pastor. And he'll be glad in a moment to tell you where he'll be. And you can go see him and take your card, and he'll be more than happy to help you with your decision. For all the rest of us, this is what I say in closing. If you know you've hurt someone, if you know there's a ruptured relationship, a fractured friendship, you know there's a marriage that needs to be mended, and it's your fault, not theirs, do the right thing. Confess it to God. Confess it to them and make it right. And Father, that is my prayer for all of us today. In Jesus' name, amen.